This is Brian Panish from the legal podcast, Get in the Game. Hope you like what you're hearing. And remember, sharing is caring. Subscribe if you like it. Share with others. But don't forget, get in the game. All right. So thanks for uh, talking to us today. You've written several books. Why did you decide to write this one? Well, I uh, decided that uh, at least every 50 years of uh, legal practice, it would be, <laughs> it might be a good time to uh, take a take a pause and, and and look back over the cases I've been involved in. And fortunately, I've been able to be involved in a number of interesting ones, I think, and uh, collect them uh, in under one cover and uh, get it. Um, get it out there. I've started also uh, teaching more. And uh, so I, I think for, you know, the next generation of lawyers uh, coming down the pike, I know that when I was um, a kid or in law school, um, there were a number of uh, notable lawyers who had books out and it had some influence uh, on, my, on my thinking and perhaps my career. Yeah, you've certainly been involved in some fascinating cases, and I want to talk to you about that. But first, the, I want to talk to you about the title. How'd you come up with that? It's a great title. How'd you come up with it? Sure, Saving saving the World One Case at a Time. Well, um, I mean, it's, uh, it's a bit of tongue-in-cheek. Um, of course, uh, uh, literally, while we can make a contribution, I think, for the betterment of the planet and for the justice system, um, uh, us, one lawyer, and certainly even us collectively as lawyers, uh, are, are not going to by ourselves uh, save the planet. However, I think that um, when we all wrap it up and uh, look back, uh, I'd I like, uh, and I think most of us would like to say, not only did we make a living, but that uh, we helped contribute at least in some small way uh, to furthering the justice system, protecting the environment, uh, vindicating civil rights, uh, or doing other uh, positive positive things in our career. Yeah, you've certainly done that. I And uh, the last thing I'm going to ask you is if you have any advice to young lawyers. But before we get there, um, you know, how was it? You, you had quite a interesting career. How, how was it that you were able to be involved in so many high profile cases or at least cases that had such an uh, effect on, on our country. Why, why do you think that, you know, was it just luck? Uh, a really a combination of things and it really depends on, on the case. For example, the Exxon Valdez case, um, I had been a fairly prominent prosecutor, both state and federal government but had joined a, a private firm, uh, a, uh, and it was actually a maritime law firm, Hill, Betts, and Nash. So when the Exxon Valdez uh, went down in um, 1989, uh, my law firm, I was based in New York, got a call because we had handled a number of maritime disasters before and also major environmental cases. So we got a call really within hours of the ship sinking by some of the native Alaskan corporation representatives 
who asked us uh, to come up there. And I actually, uh, I went to the airport, I got up um, in Anchorage, Alaska and took a small plane flying out over the Exxon Valdez. And perhaps sadly, uh, I got there before a lot of the response equipment uh, did. It was a quiet uh, day. There wasn't much, uh, much weather and the oil was still potentially containable at that point. So um, other cases, um, for example, you know, the September 11th uh, cases, I was asked by the special master, uh, Ken Feinberg, to take on a number of cases really on a pro bono basis. Um, and then a couple of months later, there was a flight 587 to the Dominican Republic from JFK uh, crashed and people thought that perhaps that was a terrorist event initially. And um, some Dominican, um, actually a Dominican paralegal who worked in our law firm uh, had actually uh, close friends and family, um, family friends who uh, died on that, on that flight. So it's really been a, a, a combination of things. Um, I won't say I've gone after some cases, but uh, when the Holocaust cases came along, I was really uh, asked by some of the major uh, Jewish organizations uh, to head up, uh, take a lead role in some of those cases, particularly the French Holocaust. French bank cases and, and the German case against Germany and German industry. And I, I like to think that was maybe because uh, uh, of my legal skills, but actually it was probably more in the nature of diplomatic skills and helping navigate the political waters between various, various interests and perhaps div uh, minor divisions between Jewish organizations and and groups, so I was something of a neutral in that. So, so really, the answer is it, it really has varied. But I've also, um, you know, been known to take on cases uh, potentially, which many other lawyers considered to be uh, uh, impossible, and um, uh, some of those worked out quite nicely. So it's a matter of hopefully a little bit of skill, a lot of Irish luck, I, I would say, was involved as well. You talk a lot about um, the importance of our civil justice system. How would, how would you, why do you think it's so important? Well, it, it's, uh, it's really the, the gem and one of the jewels um, really in the American system. Um, uh, our founding fathers probably could have never uh, contemplated um, contingency fees, class actions. However, uh, early on the first Judiciary Act of 1789 enacted the Federal Tort Claims Act. And basically the theory back then was that the courts of the United States should be open uh, generally to people, not only Americans, but from people around the world, um, that the doors of all courthouses in civilized countries, which the US considered it to be even in its infancy, should be open uh, to deserving claims. And um, 
I think, unfortunately, we've gotten away from that. As you know, a lot of my work is international uh, and um, sovereign immunity is very hard to break in many cases. I've succeeded, we've succeeded in doing it in some cases to assert jurisdiction over um, major torts such as the Bhopal gas disaster in US courts. Uh, however, ultimately the Bhopal case uh, was unfortunate because um, although we felt that the US court should be open to claimants, especially given the challenges of the Indian court system uh, and the defendant was Union Carbide based here in Connecticut, uh, that um, the victims of Bhopal gas disaster should have recourse to the US courts uh, to go after Warren Anderson, the CEO of Union Carbide and Union Carbide itself. Uh, the courts, however, did not agree uh, with us ultimately on that. And I believe the just, justice system fell short in that regard. So there's been, uh, well, the doors of US courts were largely open um, when we were a young country. Uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, I've seen a closing of that, uh, uh, of the judicial doors, um, uh, racketeering statutes, civil RICO statutes, the extraterritorial or overseas impact of that, uh, the Federal Tort Claims Act and um, sovereign immunity issues uh, have largely been decided um, against, uh, in many cases, uh, plaintiffs, uh, even US citizens who were subjected to um, foreign torts uh, victimized by foreign disasters. Uh, and uh, I think that's wrong, but ultimately it, it's going to take Congress really to, I think, correct that. Um, uh, the closing of, of the doors to both U.S. citizens and, and non-U.S. citizens. Uh, we have, you know, the greatest court system, I think, uh, in the world. Other countries have started to try and replicate or, or follow us, maybe in class actions contingency, contingencies, but um, far and away, we've given access both through statutes and common law uh, to uh, ordinary people uh, by incentivizing monetarily lawyers to represent them and take on contingency and high-risk cases. And it's uh, generally worked out, but uh, uh, still the scales, in my view, are not completely evened up. And I see when I go to federal court, it's largely become the venue of um, large corporations settling their disputes in federal court and the access to the little guy, civil rights cases and others, while, while not foreclosed to them, uh, uh, is not completely on a level playing field. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about that, how you, your belief that uh, what you've seen about how the law has shifted in favor of the rich and powerful. But before we get to that, I want to follow up. You said, you know, the doors are being shut to people injured in other countries, even U.S. citizens. Um, 
And you said that maybe it'll take an act of Congress to fix that. But I want to push you a little bit on that because cases that I've had um, in other countries, originally the courts were taking them, I don't know, 20 years ago in, in the US, but gradually, uh, at least the courts that I were involved in, the, based on the doctrine of an inconvenient forum, they all the cases gradually started getting declined. And so, you know, what, what are you thinking of? What type of act of Congress could fix that? Because the judges, it seems to me, um, have gotten a lot more sympathetic to the idea that these companies, these poor American companies are being victimized by people um, who should just sue in the inadequate courts where they got hurt. Well, I, I certainly agree with your analysis as to, uh, as to uh, courts, for example, in the Bhopal case, Union Carbide would be a prime example uh, where um, the courts, in my view, really went out of their way to protect Union Carbide from being uh, subjected to uh, plaintiff's claims in, in U.S. courts. Uh, I, my feeling is that if U.S. companies want the benefit of doing business here, of, of incorporating here, Delaware, New York, uh, wherever else in the U.S., then there should be, they should be subject um, to really recompense and accounting uh, in uh, New York and U.S. courts. And the California courts, um, as you know, were very strong in the Holocaust um, era when a number of federal cases were being thrown out against uh, um, some of the Holocaust claims. And I believe it was uh, the California legislature extended the statute of limitations and indeed um, placed certain banks and corporations in potential jeopardy of losing their their state licenses. Uh, other states have been much more, I think, protective of the corporations incorporated uh, in them. Uh, and uh, But the reach uh, of federal law, US courts, is really necessary uh, to go after and, and collect damages from US corporations. And you're right, doctrines such as form nonconvenience and uh, can, is so discretionary with the judges that any judge who doesn't want to hear a case doesn't have to hear the case uh, if they apply uh, that that doctrine in a very broad sense. So yeah. uh, I tend to agree with you, and I'm not sure. I think in Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act cases, uh, I think the case law has become so restrictive uh, as far as jurisdiction over sovereign acts, uh, even genocide cases. Um, I've had, unfortunately, some genocide cases, African genocide cases against Germany, for example, where uh, US citizens who were refugees from uh, African states such as Namibia and whose families had been subjected to really the first genocide of the 20th century uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, 1903, really to 1905 by the, the German imperial forces, uh, were ultimately denied um, 
jurisdiction in the U.S. courts, and the courts uh, went on to say in denying jurisdiction that clearly this wrongs have occurred, but they should be they should be tried in another forum. Well, the question arises: what other forum is available? We pursued claims in the United Nations, the European Court of Human Rights, and other international forums, but those are generally available to sovereign entities, to countries, not to individuals or, or non-governmental organizations. So without the US court jurisdiction, uh, there's largely um, no forum available uh, to victims, victims of, of genocide, unfortunately. Yeah, we we had uh, some Ford Firestone cases that uh, hap- that took place in Argentina, and uh, one was in federal court and several in state court in Florida. The Florida courts took them uh, because there was no other realistic forum. There there was no forum available in Argentina because of their law of jurisdiction. The federal court and on appeal, it was affirmed, said no, Argentina is available and it's an inconvenient forum. But of course, we went to Argentina and. There, there was no way to proceed. So it was, it was just illusory. And it's just one more example of how the law in the US, in my opinion, is shifting in favor of the rich and powerful, which is something that you talk about. So what have you seen? How have you seen the law shift in favor of the rich and powerful in the US? Well, um, I think the, uh, the two most recent examples I, I, I've run into are, as I mentioned, I think uh, in genocide and international human rights cases where um, we, for example, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago um, when um, the US courts uh, began applying uh, the Federal Tort Claims Act to international law claims in uh, various notable cases, we were very optimistic that this would open the doors, not to necessarily universal jurisdiction, but to an expansive jurisdiction in in human rights cases, uh, particularly the Chilean situation and various other Latin American uh, cases where uh, dictators were found and served at airports here or elsewhere. Uh, there was, um, jurisdiction was upheld. However, as I just mentioned, um, in the over Herrero and Nama cases out of, uh, which occurred in Namibia, uh, but um, uh, these were fundamental uh, genocide cases uh, and clear cut uh, violations of international human rights law uh, and um, whether it be war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide, there's nobody will argue that those are not international violations. And uh, we attempted to bring the case here uh, in the US. We also certainly notified and dealt with the UN uh, on the issues, but they basically had no form. There were upwards of 50% of the entire populations of these tribes had been decimated by Germany. The German courts were not open uh, to them. And uh, with the US uh, 
courts being closed to them, they really had no remedy. Uh, another series of cases we had, for example, perhaps uh, timely to what we see on the news today is I represented uh, a number of uh, opposition pro-democracy leaders, um, Yulia Tymoshenko and others who were in jail when they reached out uh, to me to see if we could bring a case in US courts. And um, they were subjected to not only violations of civil rights, trumped up criminal charges, denial of health care, uh, but other violations of fundamental human rights. So I went over to Ukraine and then uh, filed uh, cases in the Southern District here in the US uh, District Court. And uh, lo and behold, we found that uh, Paul Manafort and others who ultimately went to work for Donald Trump uh, were really managing the political campaigns and governmental campaigns of some of the pro Pro Russian, um, the pro Russian dictator at the, at the time. Uh, in any event, while the US courts were somewhat sympathetic uh, to the claims of the pro democracy uh, leaders who were denied civil and human rights in, in Ukraine, ultimately the court uh, did deny, uh, deny jurisdiction, even though we found some evidence of money laundering um, uh, by Paul Manafort, some of his cronies and some of the pro-Russian uh, Ukrainian oligarchs and governmental leaders through banks in New York and the US. So we, we felt a, cons uh, a, a significant part of their international racketeering scheme and uh, to suppress the pro-democracy forces and to make money through corruption uh, involved US banks, but uh, the courts have a lot of discretion, as you know, and ultimately decided that no, the US, um, the US courts would be closed, um, closed to that. We ultimately uh, did bring a case against Paul Manafort, and, but that was uh, ultimately um, the special prosecu prosecutor's office and the U.S. Attorney's Office really took over our investigation and pursued it criminally uh, against him. And um, we were glad to be helpful there, but we felt that uh, uh, our clients in the civil case really were not given a fair shake, uh, given the extent of money that was being washed through U.S. banks. Yeah, that's just another of the fascinating uh, cases in um, in the book. You've got that we touched on the Exxon Valdez and Bhopal, uh, now Ukraine, Manafort and Giuliani. You've got a Cirque du Soleil case. It's really fascinating, and I recommend the book, Saving the World, One Case at a Time. Um, before we let you go, though, do you have any advice for young lawyers? Uh, sure. Um... You know, I've been teaching for some time, um, not only in, in law schools, but also in the political science department at Fairfield University and elsewhere. So, um, and I'm always asked, well, what are the opportunities for a career uh, such as yours in human civil rights, environmental law? And my answer, uh, again, perhaps tongue in cheek, 
uh, but seriously is there's unlimited opportunities. And that's why I and many of you, the students, went to law school was to not only make a living, but, but to, to do well. The tricky part of it is uh, obviously not going bankrupt in the process and, and to make a living. And uh, fortunately, I've been able to do that. And I've also counseled um, and taught subjects that I was never taught. In other words, really how to pick and choose a, a strong contingent fee case, how to properly investigate it beforehand, uh, because you're pretty much stuck with a case once you have it. Um, I also um, uh, teach other younger lawyers through the New York City Bar Association Legal Referral Service. And we have to really make a decision within 10 or 15 minutes of interviewing a client, really whether, whether it's worth pursuing and doing our due diligence uh, further. So um, I'm very, uh, you know, uh, I tell my uh, students that if, if there are 10 proposed cases to them and 10 clients, you can give nine of them, you might be able to give some good advice to, but you probably shouldn't take their cases. It's really the one out of 10 case that is gonna be economically viable. Um, and uh, if you wanna take a case on and uh, pro bono cases and, and, and students and lawyers should, at least for a percentage of their case, but uh, you should be very aware when you take on uh, a pro bono case and not do it through lack of due diligence, vetting, investigation. So the upfront investigation costs are well worth it, whether it be a, a wrongful death case, personal injury, environmental case, uh, civil rights case. Uh, you may think that you know, you've wasted a lot of time if you ultimately decide not to bring the case, but uh, uh, I, I assure the students that uh, that is much better than the alternative, which is to take on a bunch of cases and then find out after you've committed to a client to pursue their case, to find out that there are, are fatal flaws uh, in it. So that's, that's really um, something which uh, they didn't teach in law school then, uh, and we had to learn the hard way, perhaps, as some of the rest of us along the way. Uh, but that's, that's the kind of advice uh, I give to students. Yeah, that's great advice. So thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate you being with us. And again, saving the world one case at a time. Thanks so much, John. In the courtroom, we rely on compelling evidence often rooted in the detailed work of scientists. That's why I'm introducing Science of Justice. This podcast by Jury Analyst isn't just legal chatter. It's a deep dive into law and science using real science, real data, and real time. The team at Science of Justice stands for integrity. They break down complex scientific principles to serve those wronged or injured, making it accessible for lawyers and other justice seekers. So now, let's really up your game and embrace some real evidence. Say goodbye to following the herd and start practicing law based on facts. You got to check out now the Science of Justice podcast.